0: The profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Where faith comes to life. Hello, and welcome to the profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The profile is brought to you in association with the magazine that I help edit. It's Premier Christianity. And if you would like a free sample copy of the latest issue, you can head straight to our website. It's premierchristianity.com. Forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking to journalist and historian Tim Stanley. Tim is a columnist and leader writer for The Telegraph newspaper, contributing editor for The Catholic Herald, and a commentator on current affairs and politics, often appearing on CNN, BBC Question Time and Sky News, among others. Tim, welcome to the programme. It's a pleasure. So here on The Profile, we always like to go back to the beginning and ask a person about their life growing up. What was life like for you?
1: I would say that life growing up for me was materially very comfortable. I was very fortunate to have intelligent parents, but there were also difficulties in it, as there are in most people's lives. I had a difficult relationship with my father. We had a period of uh, almost poverty when he was unemployed. I saw a lot of things. It all left a big impression. I would say, on balance, I'm an incredibly privileged and lucky person, but I think I also understand some of the things that other people go through.
0: And this led to, ultimately, you going off to university, and not just any university, but Cambridge. So you must have been incredibly, not only lucky in your education, but have known from a young age that you know, you, the intellectual side of you was substantial enough to warrant going to one of the best universities in the country.
1: I wouldn't say that I always knew I was going to go there, but I always had a sense of it was possible and that I I could if I wanted to, and if I applied myself to it. I was very fortunate in that my family were intellectual. Mm. They were people who read a lot, they watched films, they appreciated art. Uh, My grandmother financed piano lessons for me. So there was always conversation, argument, and debate in my household, which meant that when it came to imagining what was possible, I was given the tools. I I was given the background that meant that I could see the sky as the limit.
0: And where did um, your first encounter with Christianity come in? Was was that as a child as well? So
1: my family's religious background is very complicated. My father's side are just bog-standard Anglicans, Mm -hmm. but he wasn't religious at all. My mother's side are far more uh, Mm -hmm. colourful. So my grandparents were Christian spiritualists. You know, they believe that you talk to the dead. And they came from a long line of Protestants. They came from Methodists. They came uh, from Huguenots stretching way back. So when I was being raised, there was a lot of religion. There was a lot of spirituality in the household. And it was always a given that God existed. Mm -hmm. But in that very bourgeois, bohemian way, we were all on a constant journey to discover exactly what God looked like and what was the best way to speak to him. My mother chose to... Uh, join a Baptist church, and the family all went there. Me, it was only me in the family, me, my father, my mother, we all became Baptists. Baptists, of course, are, are not christened when they're children, they're not baptized. You wait until an age where you have the conscience and the free will to be able to do it. So I was raised in a household. Uh, that was very religiously eclectic, that was very open and articulate about it, but which also had settled upon this particular variety of evangelical Christianity Mm -hmm. as its way of expressing it. And I would say as a teenager that I hated it. I I was immersed in it. Um, I even played piano in the church, so I was clearly an important part of the community, but I totally rebelled against it, and I became a Marxist, I became an atheist. I totally rejected it. Which I'm not embarrassed by. That's what teenagers tend to do. That's perfectly normal. And somewhere along the way, I ended up coming back to it in a different form. But the consequence is, is that in England, if you say that you're not just a believer in God, but you're interested in God, people often assume that means you're slightly crazy. Mm-hmm. That's because it's just simply not. Uh, it's not as an immersive experience within British culture anymore. But it was for me growing up, mm. and that's one of those things where I would say that uh, for any difficulties there were in my youth, one immense privilege uh, was I was raised to believe that there could be a God.
0: So that, that rebellion where you left behind that sort of evangelical Baptist belief that you've been brought up in, was that an intellectual thing, like you just couldn't believe that God existed, or was this more just a sort of rebellion against your family like, as you say, a lot of teenagers do? When it comes
1: to teenagers, you've got hormones in there. Uh, You've got just a desire to disobey your parents. You've also got uh, boredom, the inability to be bored. (laughs) And if you're not not totally into evangelical Christianity, uh, those those services which last two or three hours can actually start to get a bit boring after a while. (laughs) So I'd I'd say there's a lot of very simple childish stuff. But yes, there was an element of the intellectual as well which was that I was in rebellion against what I saw as an oppressive British society. This is the 1990s, mm-hmm. um, and there were lots of elements of it which were deeply conservative, very backwards-looking, very reactionary, and I suppose I lumped Christianity into all of that. I mm. saw it as part of a, a cozy power structure that mm. kept us all down. So if you're going to embrace marxism if you're going to embrace revolution if you're going to embrace social critique it's rather inevitable growing up in an environment that you're going to see the church as one of those bastions of mm-hmm. oppression
0: so around this kind of time you went off to university to study history yeah um where did that fascination with history come from it's a very interesting question because
1: a lot of my politics and a lot of my interest in political theory and philosophy is actually rooted less in the ideas themselves than the history behind them. Right. I'm less interested in precisely what Marxism is, or precisely what Hegelianism is. I'm far more interested in the historical characters of Karl Marx. <laughs> and I'm far more interested... So I, so I was really drawn to the practical experience, for instance, of the Russian Revolution or the French Revolution. I found that absolutely fascinating. History... History is the collision of ideas and human experience. That's when real history takes place. And it can be quite a frightening thing. We know we're living through it now. Mm-hmm. When I, again, when I was growing up in the 90s, very dull, stultifying existence. It felt like nothing was going to change, nothing was going to happen. John Major then led to Tony Blair. Tony Blair led to David Cameron. All these people are essentially the same. They, they all live around a certain center ground. And it felt as though society had settled on big business is good, welfare state is good, this is the way we run things. You know you're living through history when you sense you've lost control and when suddenly social and economic forces and brilliant individuals start to dictate what happens. Mm. And that, I think, is what's always interested me about history. Um, it's chaotic. It's anarchic. And for the people living through it, it can be terrifying. And who wouldn't be fascinated by that story? It's, it's the human story mm. on paper. Yes.
0: Uh, and this, this education, it led to, I think, a, a career in academia to a certain extent. You yeah. you began to lecture at universities. Um, and what came after that?
1: After that, I I loved lecturing. I enjoyed it. I liked academic research and writing, which is a very different kind of writing to journalism. But I grew frustrated with the fact that I, I could actually name everyone who had read my books. I mean, really? <laughs> one of them, one of them, although apparently did quite well in Australia, so that not, not, not something I didn't feel much of the benefit of. I think I probably got a royalty check, 50 Australian dollars or something. I, I, it's no exaggeration to say that you're writing for a very small, small audience. audience. Yeah. And I grew tired of that. And I thought, no, I, I want to engage with society. It's that, mm. it's that thing about history again. The historian is even though they are writing about the human drama, Mm. they are necessarily detached from it because they have to be to be objective, but also because they're a spectator. The journalist is a halfway uh, between being the... Uh, the objective historian and the subjective actor Mm. the journalist goes into the middle of the events and reports from the inside so again through luck I have to see it as a blessing but also yes some effort of course I was able to persuade the Daily Telegraph to allow me to become a sort of jobbing freelance American reporter so I went from writing about historical American elections to actually being in the middle of real ones. And that was a great honor. Rather mm. than just writing about history, mm. I'm actually witnessing yeah. it
0: happen. Well, it's been said before that journalism is the first rough draft of history.
1: Absolutely, yes. And it gets it wrong. It <laughs> yes. gets it wrong because history is crucially about perspective. That's why it's technically true that history is simply what happened yesterday. But it's also not a fair description of what history is, mm. because history does require time and perspective. And our judgment on why Trump won, for instance, will be very different in 10 or 20 years' time mm. to our judgment the morning after it
0: happened. So you were sent to America by the Daily Telegraph to report on which election was this?
1: First of all, I, I was there for the 2012 election, when I mostly blogged about it, but I also made a film for the BBC. Um, but I was really in the middle in the thick of it for the 2016 election Mm. covering the republican primaries and the general election in the last
0: few weeks Mm. well there's so much we could say particularly about the current (laughs) american president maybe we'll get to that in a little bit but i wanted to go back to the the christian element of your story because you talked about being raised a baptist i understand that later you became an anglican Mm -hmm. and now of course you're roman catholic so it seems to me there's a fascinating progression or change there in how you've expressed your christianity can you talk us through that a little bit When you're
1: trying to write a narrative of your life, you end up seeing a clear line because you're telling a story, not just to other people, but to yourself. In reality, it was so complicated and so messy that I I don't want to simplify it that Mm -hmm. way. In fact, it's so complicated that my only working explanation that makes sense to me is it was directed by the Holy Ghost. Mm It's the only way I can explain it. Mm -hmm. So end of my first year at Cambridge, I was desperately unhappy. I hated Cambridge, hated being away from my family. Um, There was something wrong, something missing, and I started studying early modern history, and I was studying the Civil War, and I became just drawn in to these fascinating debates about the, the nature of faith and belief in the 17th century, and I started to visit English Anglican churches. And I would get on my bicycle because I couldn't drive and I would cycle out to villages and I would just spend hours studying. I just found it so fascinating. And I realized that actually I wanted to believe Mm. and that... I wanted to understand what it is that other people believed mm.
0: in. So at this, at this point, you were an atheist. I was still an atheist. You rejected the Marxist, upbringing. atheist, yeah.
1: no belief in God whatsoever. But there was something that I wanted to understand. In that same way that you might, you might visit uh, Moscow to understand the October Revolution. I wanted to understand where people were coming from. So I, I exposed myself to it. I immersed myself in it. And it start, something about it started to speak to me and make sense. Now, I was at Cambridge... Apart from the Evangelical Student Union, I wasn't going to join that because I just didn't want to go evangelical again. The Anglicans were the only ones. The chaplaincies were the only ones who I could have this conversation with and begin Mm -hmm. this journey with. So, yes, I I became an Anglican. I was christened. Um, I regard that as a tremendous privilege, Mm -hmm. and I'm very grateful uh, to the priest at Little St. Mary's, Cambridge, uh, who received me into the Anglican Church. But almost within minutes of having done it, I knew that I had crossed a threshold, but I wasn't all the way into home. Mm-hmm. I wasn't quite there yet. And it was only through further reading, further study, further conversation that I realized, to me, it makes logical sense, but also on some level I can I still can't quite understand. It makes emotional sense that the church established through St. Peter, the Church of Rome, is the church that I should have been in. Mm-hmm. So I was an Anglican for maybe one or two years. At the end of that, I began private private instruction with a priest and I converted to Roman Catholics. Mm. And by the way, I did it without telling anyone. Right. I did it privately because I didn't want people to think that it was a bride's head thing. I didn't want people to think that I, I was surrounded by uh, Catholic fogies who had compelled me or convinced <laughs> me to do it. It was nothing like that at all. Yeah. It just It seemed to me to be the natural final step to take And the measure that it was the right step, because people can think if you've been all these different things that maybe you just can't make your mind up. But I think the measure of the fact that it was the final step is it's now 11 years since Mm, I did it. mm. And nothing else has appealed to me since. So I think I'm home.
0: (laughs) Very good. Do you ever wonder, though, what your life would look like if you'd stayed as that Marxist, atheist student in terms of your beliefs? I guess both religious... I'd be a Labour um, MP. Would you? Would you?
1: I've no doubt about that at all. I'd be a Labour MP. That was the path I was on. I um, I ran for Parliament for my hometown in 2005. Um, I I was respectable. I had mm-hmm. written uh, left-wing histories, not quite Marxist, but left-wing histories, mm-hmm. which were very well received. Uh, I had a lot of friends in the Labour movement, a lot of good contacts. Also, because I was on the hard left, I would have been ideally suited to have benefited from the Corbyn revolution. right? And had I not converted, <laughs> had I not gone down this different path, I, there's no doubt in my mind that right now I'd either be working for Jeremy Corbyn or I'd be, or I'd be a Labour MP. Of course, that assumes that people would nominate and elect me, but I, I, that was the career I mm. intended to take. Mm.
0: Now, Clearly, we, we've just talked about the religious change that happened with you becoming an Anglican. But what about this political change? You know, do you want to marry those two things and say these two things happen at the same time they're connected? Or would you say, well, there is a difference here?
1: I think there is a difference. And for a while, I was Catholic and still a socialist. I would say even now, I'm still still a far more socialist Tory than many Tories I know. And that's because of the lingering influence of Catholicism. Mm. Uh, however more friendly I feel towards classical liberal economic ideas, there's still a part of me because of the Catholicism, the Catholic conscience that tells me, but we've got to do something to help the very poorest. Mm. So, um, so I, I would say there isn't a very clear link, but undeniably they happened within this same strange turbulent five mm. years. They mm. happened around the same time. And one impact that... Uh, that finding Christ and a conversion to Catholicism had on me, one impact was to grow within me an awareness that I have responsibility for my own life. As a socialist, I tended to think that the answer to all things was the state. The state would redeem us, and all that mattered was taking control of the state, and then you could use state through redistribution to improve everyone's lives. And I now realise that not only does that not work historically, but also I don't have the right to impose socialism upon other people. I'm still a socialist in this sense. I'm personally a socialist, I think. I try (laughs) to behave in the sense that I believe there is such a thing as socialist morality. Mm -hmm. I think I I do probably do a better job of living by it Mm -hmm. as a Christian who doesn't wish to compel it upon other people. I think in my private life, I'm a better person for having stopped being a political socialist and become something more akin to a theological
0: socialist. So today, you're often in the media on a whole host of channels, as I mentioned at the beginning, giving commentary, giving opinion. What does the average week look like for you? Is there an average week in this kind of a media world that you now inhabit? <laughs> I,
1: I have a, a principle of writing a 1,000 words a day, which lends itself very well to a job in which you have to write mm, so much. Yeah. So in that sense, my week is a seven-day week, mm-hmm. Whether the thousand words goes into an article or it goes into my diary. By the way, this is nothing. Queen Victoria wrote something like three thousand to five thousand words a day. You know, back in because the day, because she didn't have Netflix, she didn't and TV have anything else to do. And Twitter, to people, distract her. people were also far more literate um, and far more interested in the mind back then than they are now. So, in that sense, I'm I'm always on the go. And the thing about being a writer is that whenever anything happens to you, you want to write it down. Mm. If you think of something, you want to articulate it on the page. So the answer is partly that there is no time off. I'm permanently writing. Um, I'm physically in the office for three days a week. One day a week is devoted to my column. I would like to say that the other two and a half to three days is spent uh, relaxing, but it's not. (laughs) Uh, if, If I don't want to sit at home and write something, I will drive off and find something to write about elsewhere.
0: I'm interested in this background in history that you have. Do do you think that having a historical awareness and background is not only beneficial to you as a journalist when it comes to writing about these things, but actually there needs to be more of that in the political world when it comes to forming policy, a a better grasp of history? It helps.
1: I, I would say writing for The Telegraph, it helps even more because The Telegraph is very conscious of what it has said in the past and what it has always believed because it's a conservative newspaper. And conservatism is partly about having a, a familial relationship with the past and a respect for it. So I, I, I write leaders for The Telegraph. Those are not, most people don't know what that is. The editorials, The Telegraph's opinion. When I do that, I'm articulating. It's a little like being a Catholic. I'm articulating what The Telegraph has always believed. <laughs> I can never, as an editorial writer, write anything that The Telegraph has not said before, and really? I cannot contradict it. No. And if a subject comes up and we don't know what it is, that we think about, mm. think about it. Of course, we have an instinct as to what we think about it. But the first thing we do is go to the archives right. and see if it's come up before so and then refer that, back
0: to it. How that. does that work on something like Brexit?
1: Well, we have to marry it to the long-term philosophical principles of conservatism and the Daily Telegraph. So we, wouldn't want to, we couldn't say anything which totally contradicted the spirit of everything that we have said before. So in that, so in that sense, when it comes to editorializing, it's very important. It's very important because it gives you a sense of what's happened before and therefore what could happen again. But I think history also breeds in you a certain bit of cynicism, Um, an awareness of how things can go wrong, awareness of the fact that politicians can lie and will disappoint you, which is learned through personal experiences as, as well as through study of history, but also an awareness of the limitations of history. So I hear a lot of politicians invoking it, and it annoys me when they do. Winston Churchill would think this. Right. Yeah. Well, Michael Foot would have said that. Well, it's like World War II all over again. <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. Um, everything happens in its own context and on its own terms. Mm. History appears to repeat from the outside, but actually it, it always happens on its own terms. And therefore, when, I, when you see the Brexit debate, as a historian, that actually empowers me to be a little more cynical and I, I would like to think a little more uh, nuanced about one's interpretation of Brexit in relation to mm. British history. Mm. This is not World War II. This is not Dunkirk, etc., uh, etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Mm. Like, I, And I mean that in the sense not only of this is not a glorious thing. This is our Dunkirk. We're going to mm. leave Europe and win a, win a existential war. But I also mean it in the sense of... Uh, uh, this is not a disaster. Mm-hmm. It, ne- it needn't be a disaster. Just because something's been a disaster before doesn't mean it has mm. to be a disaster again. Mm. A, a lot of people study history and they end up becoming prisoners of it. So they say, this is like World War I. Therefore, World War I is around the corner. No, no, no. Look at it this way. Here's what went wrong in World War One. So here's what we don't do next time. Right. But I, I, f- I fear that people actually see themselves as being trapped in cycles of mm. history that they're doomed to repeat. Mm. And they're really not.
0: Is there a clash, though, when you come down and you... You're going to write a leader, after you're going to write this editorial for the Daily Telegraph, and you're aware of what the Telegraph has historically believed. Is there ever a clash between that and your personal moral or faith convictions?
1: Absolutely. Of course there will be. Um, it, it, that's my job, to articulate what the Telegraph thinks. And I'm absolutely fine with that, because that's what I'm paid to do. I have no right to gripe or complain. If, there, if, if I do feel that strongly about it, I should resign. If there was an editorial which took a line that I felt very strongly about when it comes to faith and morals, I would ask that I didn't have to write it. Mm -hmm. That's never actually, that hasn't yet come up. Mm. Um, If it did, I actually trust them that they would say that's fine, you don't have to. If they didn't, uh, if it became a disciplinary issue, then I would walk away from it. But I'm very fortunate that the Telegraph is a, a sensible paper, that aside from the fact that my philosophy generally accords with what it believes, it's also a paper that doesn't say mm. outrageous or particularly radical things, because the very nature of English Toryism mm. is to avoid both outrageousness and radicalism.
0: You've joined us at a time where um, another well-known Catholic figure has been taken to task in the media for expressing traditional Christian views, I'm talking about Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was yeah. grilled by Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain just this week about abortion and same-sex marriage. Do you think it's becoming harder to express historic Christian perspectives in today's culture? No. Whenever we have this debate of what's it like to be a
1: Christian now, we've got to remember what it was like to be a Christian in the past. In the early years of the church, the apostles were crucified upside down for proselytising Jesus Christ. This doesn't compare. This doesn't compare to what's taking place in the Middle East. We have to keep some perspective. And we as Christians benefit from the fact that we have a legal system and a democratic system, which broadly allows everyone to express their opinion so long as they don't try to incite violence. So we need to keep perspective. It's becoming difficult in the sense that expressing Christian opinions increasingly has consequences. People always say, people always when they're discussing free speech, they always say you have no right to shout fire in a crowded theatre. Actually, you have absolutely every right to shout fire fire in a crowded theater, so long as you understand that someone will either punch you or you'll be arrested. (laughs) In other words, there are consequences. So I don't think it's becoming harder to articulate Christian views, but the consequences are growing. Mm. And that's why the Jacob Rees-Mogg remarks are so important, because he went on a very popular program, he articulated a Catholic point of view, and he articulated an uncompromising Catholic point of view. Mm. Particularly on abortion, he said, it is simply morally indefensible even in cases of rape and incest. The interesting question isn't, can he articulate it? He just did. Mm. The interesting question is, will he get a job in the government? Mm. Will he suffer at the ballot box? Will he be banned from appearing on comedy programmes, which he's been doing so much, like, have I got news for you? Mm. And will it mean he certainly can't be prime minister? That's the interesting test. Mm. If he survives it, if there's a sense that his popularity hasn't been dented, I regard that as a win for Catholics.
0: Mm. But it seems that Tim Farron, when he was faced with similar questions, it, it appears some people have said well, he basically was forced to do a bit of a U-turn on some of these issues and say things that previously he wasn't saying, and ultimately um, the sort of Christian side of this didn't win at all. He felt forced to resign. Is the same thing going to happen to Jacob rees mogg
1: There were two reasons why Farron was a little bit different. Three reasons why Farron was different. One, he comes from a party which today defines itself as being uh, aggressively socially liberal. Didn't used to, does now. Uh, Second, he appeared to equivocate in his answers. And I think the public would have respected him more if he'd just said, I don't believe these questions are any of the interviewers' business, or... I take a strong Christian view. This is what it is, but I'm not going to legislate. But instead, he equivocated. I think he was trying not to offend people. I think he was genuinely trying to walk a line, which is a very Christian thing to do, by the way. Christians are always being hoist by their own petard that they're too nice. Friedrich Nietzsche was quite right. Christianity is undermined by its obsession with not offending anyone or causing <laughs> any harm. So there was a second reason. But the, the, the third, and I think most important, I think most overlooked reason why Farron came unstuck, and I suspect rog- Mogg won't, is that there's more prejudice in this country against evangelical belief than there is against Catholic belief. And that's because many people will think of Marx's remarks, he's simply saying what he's been told to say mm-hmm. by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That's the way a lot of English people see the Catholic Church. It teaches people what to say. They say it. He might not even really believe in it. He's just a Catholic. And that's why there are so many Catholics in Parliament and no one ever asks them questions about their, their private views. Right. Evangelicals are not held up to that standard. People regard evangelicals as creepy and weird um, and fanatics. Mm -hmm. Now, again, I have this privilege, as I said at the beginning, of growing up in an evangelical household. I know that they are fantastically biblically literate and that the positions they hold are based upon a rigorous assessment of the gospels, life experience, and their own conscience. But unfortunately, Tim Farron discovered that the public generally doesn't have that view of evangelicals mm. up until now. Mark has been treated as, and um, I, 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 I like him. I, this isn't a criticism, but he's been treated as an as an eccentric, and as a throwback. There's a possibility now that people realise what he believes and that he means it. That he will simply reg- be regarded as not just an anachronism, but dangerous, bigoted, and someone who people aren't keen to be seen cozing up to and being and laughing with and being friends with. That to me is the big test. Of course you can come from a Catholic home. You can be christened and confirmed a Catholic. And you can have views which are un-Catholic. That's absolutely right. Uh, But you you cannot call yourself a Catholic politician. But too many people do. Too many people define themselves by that. And they will try and get votes at churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, They will try and be friendly to the local priests or the local nuns. They will play that card. That irritates me. That that really gets on my nerves. That to me is an appropriation, a misappropriation of religion. If you're going into politics on the basis of a philosophy which is informed by Catholicism, let it be properly Mm. and openly informed by it, not just something you're using at election time.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of part one of today's interview with Tim Stanley. But join us for the rest of our conversation. We'll be back right after this. Let Profile... You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Where faith comes to life. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. Great to have you with us this afternoon as we chat to Catholic commentator, writer and historian Tim Stanley. Let's listen in. Half of the UK population um, has no religion mm-hmm. now. And so it is what we've seen there the kind of death of nominalism? And you mentioned some of these Catholics who uh, perhaps claim to, to have that kind of Catholic heritage and background, but really it's quite nominal. It's not really driving their, their policy. Is that what we should take from this latest survey? Because some people looked at this and said, this is terrible news for the church. You know, mm-hmm. Christianity is on its way out. Is Christianity on its way out, or is it no. just nominalism dying?
1: No, no, no. You're absolutely right. There, there's this very strange contradiction between the polls and what you see in churches. And what I personally see in churches of all different stripes including Anglicans, who are so often written off for some reason, is I'm seeing growing congregations, but crucially, more actively engaged and enthusiastic congregations. Uh, you're seeing in some parts of the world a spike in people entering the priesthood. Scotland, I think, has recently done very well uh, when it comes to getting ordinance. So there's a contradiction between that and that. And I suspect you're right. I think that what's happening is that in the past, people would have defined themselves, particularly... If they had a strong family tradition of being Catholic, they would have said, I am a Catholic, without it really meaning they even went to Mass or believed in God. Mm. It's simply who they are. That's changing. That's falling away. Mm -hmm. But again, to go back to the history, nothing unusual about that in English society. Really, since the 17th century onwards, we've had a crisis of church attendance. The English are not big churchgoers. They never have been. And if you did judge it upon the the fate of church congregations, then you would have judged that uh, England lost its faith almost completely in the late 18th century. Uh, Turnout was very low. Taking communion was very low. Uh, People wrote of a terrible crisis. They were dealing with the rise of atheism. Middle of the 19th century, they had to deal with Darwinism. Uh, They had to deal with a rupture within the church, in the Anglican church, between Anglo-Catholics and the more evangelical wing. Mm -hmm. This is nothing new. Mm -hmm. So I think the church is historically actually, if not in a a good shape, I think there are still strong foundations for the church to build Mm. on.
0: But what would happen if this decline continues? If, say, you know, I mean, you look at some of the projections people are saying. Look, if this rate of decline continues in forty or fifty years, that would have a knock-on effect for wider society, wouldn't it? I think it's all, it's already having an effect. I mean, look. To me,
1: part of to, to me, a lot of Christianity is, it's a Jewish cult, right? That's where it begins, and it has that rabbinical tradition, of constant debate and reassessment of the law. It's about the evolution of a conscience. We believe that you are given a conscience by God, but the exercise of that conscience is a discipline. The constant, rigorous asking yourself, is this the right thing to do? Is that the wrong thing to do? Personally, as as a Christian, sometimes I actually feel almost paralyzed by this. They call it, you might call it Catholic guilt. I would call (laughs) it the conscience. Always asking myself, what should I today be doing that's right? Mm. The erosion of that... That's what concerns me. I mean, I, I would love to save souls, I'd love to see everyone be a Christian, but I can't make a social I can't make an argument for that in wider society, because if you just don't get it, you don't get it, and people won't see the appeal of that. But what I would say to people is that If you see a decline in interest in religion and religious identification, you're going to lose that Judeo-Christian obsession with the conscience, which I think has been an immeasurable benefit to Western society and the world. It's one of the reasons why we're a liberal democracy today. Mm. We're a far more Christian society today than we were say 500 years ago in the sense of far more tolerant charitable and we're using technology and science to help people Mm. that's building upon that judeo-christian foundation of the obsession with the conscience and i fear if we lose that engagement with religion and with its ethical tradition i fear we'll lose Mm. that sense of the importance of the conscience and i think at the in in small ways at the edges of society we're seeing that I think we're seeing it in the rise of euthanasia in the Benelux countries. I think we see it in the numbers when it comes to abortion. We see it in the the way the public talks about refugees, the homeless. Uh, You see it in the conditions at Grenfell Tower, uh, the terrible urban poverty that exists in parts of this country. I see that as being somewhat down to the fraying of that religious conscience. Mm.
0: Some people have said that there is a problem though with the media and understanding Christianity. In fact um, you made a comment about how evangelicals are often asked about gay marriage but yes. you said ri- rightly I think as well that Muslims are also asked, al- always asked about ISIS yes. Jews are asked about the state of Israel and Catholics of course as we've just seen this week are often asked about abortion. So is there a yes. problem in the media? Is there a sort of lazy journalism where we just fall into stereotypes of thinking well Tim's a Catholic I need to ask him about abortion.
1: It's a desire to find a subject which is going to get people to watch. It is the media being out of touch with religion and not terribly well educated in it. I was fascinated by the Good Morning Britain interview with with Jacob Rees-Mogg when there was a moment that um, Piers Morgan said, well, I'm a Catholic and I'm all for gay marriage. Well, (laughs) I I I don't want to put myself in the position of telling people if they are or they're not a Catholic but he needs to go back and read the catechism of the Catholic Church because he will find...
0: Are you seriously suggesting he doesn't do that each night? I don't. As (laughs) his bedtime
1: reading. But obviously something's gone wrong that he thinks he can with authority say, well, I'm a Catholic, and I think I can speak for many Catholics when I say we're absolutely fine with it. That implies that the media has fallen out of touch with what religion is, and that's down to a lack of religious education. Um, It's down to some prejudice. As you say, evangelicals, it's always about sex. Catholics, it's always about abortion. But also... It's a failure, it's a dearth of imagination. If I was to meet Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I also have him in an interview, what is the point of asking him about an element of, do- of doctrine that we know he's already signed up to, which he's already talked about elsewhere? I would say to him, how do you square your views on immigration with what Pope Francis says? That to me is a far more interesting and challenging question to put to a Catholic conservative than what are your views on gay marriage, which mm. we already know. So it's, it, it's partly the media doesn't actually know the right questions to ask mm.
0: so is there no uh, journalistic duty of me right now to ask really hard questions about your personal morality as, as a catholic is there not an element of as a journalist you have to sort of get to the juicy story and people were talking about sex or people were talking about abortion and i want to get a decent quote out of you is, is there nothing to be said for that uh,
1: it's it's understandable and as the two interviewers said you're going to be asked about this because you're interested in becoming prime minister uh, personally i think it's irrelevant and boring uh, I, I, I'm, but that maybe maybe that's because, again, because I was raised in a religious household, because I am religious, I just know what the views are on these things and they don't particularly interest me. Uh, there is so much more that's more interesting about Christianity, Islam, Sikhism, Hinduism than where we all stand on abortion. Mm. And it, it, I just find it frustrating that journalists don't ask about that.
0: Mm. Uh, going back to your own media career, I know you've been on BBC Question Time as a yeah. panellist a few times were you nervous going into that, what has been termed a lion's den by others who've been on that program before? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm generally uh, almost um,
1: sociopathically calm when I do these things. <laughs> but there there are two programs which I'm always nervous about. And one is Newsnight. OK. Uh, because regardless of what people say, say on Twitter, the standard of journalism is very high. They're very clever. and You never know what they're going to ask. The other one I was very nervous about was Question Time, partly because so many people are watching, but also because it's so random. You, mm. you, you literally don't know what the question is. And I can't mm. stress that. People assume we have been given it in advance <laughs> and we're lying. No, the first time you hear it asked you is the first time you hear the question. And so what everyone does, apart from the poor politicians who have the time to, but what the rest of us on the panel do is we spend a day or two beforehand thinking of every single possible question and every single possible answer <laughs> so that you're, you're ready with anything. But what always happens is there's always, a, there's always a question about, I don't know, homeless donkeys that you, you <laughs> didn't expect. So you're, you're always thrown. And yeah. so going into it, knowing that how, how random it can be, means you're, you're always mm. on edge when you're doing mm. it.
0: Is there a, a kind of pressure, though, as well, whether it's internal or external, to think, you know, I am, I am speaking on behalf of, whether it's the papal or whether it's Catholics, is that a pressure?
1: I think there's more pressure not to embarrass yourself. Um, you know, I, I love the story of Vanessa Redgrave, uh, who after many decades of acting said that one, one, in one performance she was on stage and she suddenly thought, I'm acting. <laughs> <laughs> How do I know the lines? And she froze. Wow. And I think that, I, I'm surprised that doesn't happen more often. Mm. It does happen occasionally. There, uh, Jan Brewer was a famous example of a famous brain freeze during a debate for the Arizona governorship. But I, I'm always worried when I'm on something like Question Time uh, that I'm, I'm just going to either totally freeze... Or say a swear. (laughs) Or or tell a joke that falls flat. There are so many... And occasionally you do suddenly in the Mm. middle of it think... I'm on television yes. millions of people are watching. <laughs> so I, you're honestly, while you're going through it, you're, in my experience, you're fighting that mm. more than you're thinking about mm. whether or not your answers are intellectually coherent.
0: Uh, what about this kind of debate and disagreement that happens in places like Question Time, but it could also happen if you're on CNN or Sky News and there's another commentator. And again, there can arguably be a tendency from journalists to try and get these two people on screen to clash.
1: Yeah.
0: What about that kind of debate and disagreement? How do, you, how do you deal with that? Is that an easy thing to deal with? I refuse to be goaded.
1: I, when, I, when I started and I was younger, I would occasionally be drawn and I can remember the two occasions in which I lost my temper on air and I'm embarrassed <laughs> by them. Of course, no one knows they have being wiped from the record by <laughs> and I was, And I didn't lose my temper that much. But to me, whenever you're on TV or radio, what actually is, a, is you clearing your throat sounds to you like an earthquake, mm. but it's not. So, so on the basis of that experience... But also on the basis of this conscience thing, mm. I'm aware that people are watching. I'm trying to set a tone. I'm trying to prove that we don't have to hate each other. I really go out of my way not to be goaded, to refuse to be goaded. And I and I find that 99.9% of people, when they realize this is someone who doesn't want to have a fight, they recognize that, they appreciate it. And you end up having an intelligent conversation. So it's down to interviewees to refuse to do that. Mm. And by the way, I was personally very affected by the death of Joe Cox during the the Brexit referendum. Very affected by that. And since then, I have tried much harder in my writing and in my broadcasting to be a lot cooler, uh, more forgiving and more rational. Uh, because we have a real responsibility to do that, because we're setting the tone. Mm.
0: Do you ever switch off from the news cycle?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely, I do. And if I'm going to take a day off, I take a day off, and I don't look, at, I don't look at online, I don't look in newspapers or anything like that. And sometimes my colleagues are horrified, because I will come back after a weekend or a holiday, and I literally won't know what's happened or mm. understand anything. And they'll, you know, they'll sort of say, what about uh, Emmanuel Macron? I say, who? <laughs> I don't, I, it's very, when I detox, I totally detox.
0: For yeah. how long? Just 24 hours? or?
1: Oh, it can vary. If I'm taking a, a two-week holiday, then I'm, mm. I've got an incredible discipline. I, I can totally disengage. But it is addictive. It certainly is addictive. And one person who's made it more difficult to disengage is Donald Trump. Really because there's always something every half an hour there
0: is but I think with Donald Trump as well some have said that particularly again on Twitter it's almost like people are looking for something to criticize now it's not just that people are kicking off over the big announcements it's that you know he didn't put a comma in the right place and or or he spelt something wrong and suddenly people are attacking him have have parts of that side of the political spectrum almost lost their minds over this and started just to try and find anything to criticize in Trump.
1: Yes, I think that that's absolutely correct. I mean the the famous one is his reaction to the Charlottesville uh, riot where he condemned racism and violence on many sides. You can tell if you watch the clip back that that remark was uh, was him making it up as he went along. It's a classic Trump thing to read a, a stump speech and then just start adding which I disagree with. That's Even a to very the words good impression. <laughs> wow, <that's> very- <laughs> on many sides. Um, and it, well, I've, I've spent so much, it feels like I spent so much time with him. So those three words came to define his entire response to Charlottesville. Now, I would say his response was inadequate. It was unpresidential. Mm-hmm. It didn't fit with what you're supposed to do when you are president of the United States or what he should have said. Mm. Nevertheless, the fact that people jumped from, the conclu- jumped from that to concluding, in some cases, that he was a white supremacist mm. or was a neo-Nazi It's not only absurd, but on some level, it's intellectually offensive. Because Donald Trump, I have to keep on reminding people this, has Jewish grandchildren, (laughs) right? And and I've studied him. Most of the people writing this will not have the same uh, uh, familiarity with his personal biography and narrative. And I have to say, I've reached the conclusion that one can be subconsciously racist, and he may well be, but i don't think he's consciously racist it's very difficult in his personal biography to find evidence that he is he's many things but i don't
0: think he's that mm. how do you explain the 80 something percent of white evangelicals who voted for him
1: it's a lot of it's not religious a lot of those people as we were talking about earlier about uh, where you're brought up that's how you define yourself a lot of those people you'll find don't attend church regularly they will call themselves white christian white evangelical christians doesn't necessarily mean that they they are particularly religious, so we shouldn't read too much into it. I think it's more significant that a majority of white people voted for Trump. And America is a Protestant country. Therefore, that inevitably means that a significant chunk of of white Protestants voted for him. Um, But those are people who are angry about the state of the roads. They're angry about jobs disappearing. Again, we have a habit of reading everything through that prism of religion and that prism of culture. A lot of the reasons why Trump won were really very straightforward and were not irrational, and they were things like, I'm tired of urban riots, I'm tired of terror attacks, mm-hmm. Obama's been in power for eight years, the Democrats have had a shot, and I don't think Hillary brings anything new to the table.
0: Mm. What's been the best day of your career and the worst day?
1: <laughs> well, they okay, so I think the most... The most extraordinary, and I keep using this word privilege, I I feel that one has to recognize one's luck, the most extraordinary day for me, having spent years studying the American presidency, was that when the Telegraph sent me to write a report on the inauguration, and I was given the ticket for the inauguration, it wasn't until I got there that I discovered I was literally in the front row. And I was sitting directly beneath Donald Trump. (laughs) And I got to see the inauguration of a president, regardless of which one it was. I would have been just as thrilled had it been Barack Obama. Um, That's very unjournalistic to admit, but really it was extraordinary. Mm. And the the only problem with that was that uh, this is giving away a trade secret, but there are many people for whom we write obituaries in advance. Mm -hmm. And I had been sent an obituary for Trump, a sort of very early rough draft, And I was discussing, well, what do you think is going to happen? And uh, some people said, some journalists said, well, our theory is if anyone's going to try and take him out, it'll be a drone attack at the inauguration. (laughs) And I thought, how typical. (laughs) (laughs) Highest point in my career. And it's actually the one which exposes me to the greatest (laughs) risk. So I was sitting there throughout the whole thing, just praying that nothing happened to this man, because if it did... I'd have been one of the ones taken up. So I think that was the, the best day in my career. Uh, the worst day in my career? I mentioned it earlier. Uh, well, 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 two of the worst. One was having to write the editorials surrounding the Rotherham abuse cases because I had to read the entire report. As an editorial writer, you do a lot of research, and I had to read the entire report. And reading what happened to those girls had a profound impact upon me. The other very equally bad day for me was the, was the murder of Joe Cox because I, I was so personally involved in the Brexit campaign. I felt so strongly in favor mm. of brexit, and then this this vile obviously obviously mentally distraught extremist mm. murders her and it 's inevitable given that there was a huge national debate, and he was on our side in the craziest sense it's inevitable that you test your conscience and you think, did I in any way contribute to this? Did, did what I write in any way affect this outcome? Now, of course, it didn't. It didn't. But uh, it, it was, I think, one of the darkest 24 hours of my life in which I, I really thought very hard about walking away from journalism and writing. If And I had actually told myself that if we lost the referendum, I had already decided that if we lost the referendum, I was going to think about quitting journalism and going back into the media anyway, because I found the whole campaign so unpleasant. But that 24 hours really was the darkest for me mm. when I really did think, do I? there's such a huge responsibility with writing, do I want it? Mm. I think that's the closest I came to thinking mm. I would walk away from it altogether.
0: Are you as in favour of Brexit now as when you were perhaps during that campaign and on, on the day itself when you voted to leave?
1: I I absolutely am. I see that nothing has changed. Materially, Mm. nothing has changed. In fact, if anything, I'm surprised that there hasn't been greater uh, economic and political fallout from Mm. Brexit. Well,
0: there were predictions, of course, that by now our entire economy would have crashed. Yes.
1: And that there'd have to be an emergency budget and things like that. I I always argued uh, that, you know, as I always say to people, I I beg your pardon, I didn't promise you a rose garden. Mm. I always argued that it was a risk of voting for Brexit. But also that on balance, I genuinely believe, the clawing back of parliamentary sovereignty, some deregulation of the economy, I felt that outweighed Mm. the risk.
0: Some have criticised the the government's current position, um, what's known as the Henry VIII clauses. This means that the the government now can make its own decisions on the withdrawal from the EU bill and avoid the usual parliamentary scrutiny. What's your take on that?
1: Uh, It's an extraordinary job repatriating all this law from the EU to the UK. If you don't do it quickly and efficiently you could end up in a situation where we leave the eu and because so much of our law refers to the eu or relates to eu institutions the law is suddenly redundant and doesn't work the point of these so-called henry the clauses is to empower the government to uh, just do this as quickly and efficiently as possible because of the speed they actually won't be changing the law in terms of how it actually affects your life There is no plan on the part of the government whatsoever to rewrite these laws in terms of its effect. It's a question of rubbing out the word EU and replacing it with the word Britain. Okay, I understand why some people are raising concerns about that, but I suspect they're doing that because they're, they're against Brexit.
0: Well, the, the counter-argument would be more like, you know, you're someone who supported leaving the EU because you wanted to regain control, parliamentary sovereignty. Yes. And yet, now that you have parliamentary sovereignty, you're not including Parliament. You're allowing oh. the government to steamroll ahead and ignore the usual yeah. checks and balances. Deal with it.
1: We were talking earlier about uh, history, uh, in my, I think, breeds a certain degree of, of cynicism. Um. in the same way that when Mary Tudor came to the throne and wanted to overturn the Reformation in England, the only way she could do it was through using Parliament, even though she hated that. Mm. So she had to accept the royal supremacy in order to undo the royal supremacy. Likewise, to me, this is a short-term compromise. I'm not that bothered by it, (laughs) whereby we have to empower the executive in order in the long run to hand power over to Parliament. So I, I just see this as a question of uh, a paradox, mm. and Catholics deal with paradoxes all the time.
0: Mm. What do you do to, um, t- to relax, to switch off from...?
1: I, well I read a lot. Um, I read a great deal of fiction. Uh, I adore movies, not just in the sense of eating some ice cream and switching off in front of <laughs> Ghostbusters. I'm a big fan of foreign film, French film uh, in particular, and Italian film too. Uh, so there's a lot of cultural stuff going on. I jog. These are all very introverted uh, things to do. I acknowledge that, but I jog quite a lot as well. Do you describe Mm -hmm. yourself as an introvert? Oh, absolutely. And it is sometimes agony to go out in public. (laughs) Really? (laughs) It's a distraction. It's a waste of my time. And uh, there's so much to be anxious about. But you
0: don't just go out in public. You sit down in front of a TV camera and broadcast to millions of people. That's even more than going out in public. That's quite substantial, isn't it?
1: Because I, I sense I have to. I I, I sense I have
0: to. I have a,
1: a responsibility to contribute. And that's partly to do with religion. That's partly out of a sense of patriotic responsibility. I mean, again, I hate to use it again, but it's a word that's come up time and time again in this interview. Privilege and luck. I regard myself as a very privileged person. And I have a responsibility to be engaged with my country and to try to affect it and shape it in some way. It's not good enough. I could just stick to my diary. I could just stick to my personal religious Uh, life and my own my own prayer i could stick to that but i don't think that's enough i think i have a responsibility Mm. to get involved even though honestly at times uh, as a natural introvert and uh, Mm. naturally shy person
0: i really do have to force myself (laughs) (laughs) what's the what's the biggest misconception that evangelicals have of catholics
1: oh (laughs) that they worship statues and you know, it's it's wonderful. I mean, I, I go back and forth between the two all the time because my mum re- remains a committed Baptist. And I go back and forth and I, I hear things all the time. And you know what? Catholics have prejudices too. As I think I said earlier, Catholics think that evangelicals don't understand the Bible or are not very theologically literate. Au contraire. They understand it very, very well um, and can be highly intelligent people. Uh, but the, I think one of the biggest prejudices is this idea that the outward forms of Catholicism are what we worship uh, that, we, that we worship Mary thinking she is an equal to Jesus, that we, uh, we worship the rosary beads, or so we worship the Pope. We think the Pope is, is, is literally uh, God's man on earth and can do no wrong and isn't a human being, is almost divine. I, I, they have lots of false conceptions like that. And they're very easily challenged, and they have to be challenged, because um, increasingly the great divide in the world today is, is not between denominations or even between religions it's between people who as i said earlier take the, con- the, the concept of conscience seriously mm. and those who don't want to have to bother but
0: mm. well, this october will be 500 years since the beginning of the protestant reformation yes. whether or not martin luther actually nailed anything to a door um, <laughs> is obviously up for debate but nevertheless it's an interesting time to be thinking about the relationship between protestants and catholics And interesting question for you, because you started off in your religious history, if I can put it that way, on the Protestant side, you're now a Catholic. So I'd I'd love to know from you, how important do you think the current distinctions are between Protestantism and and Catholicism? Because there are some who want to see these two churches united, and there are others that say that will never happen. And actually, the distinctions are really quite important theologically.
1: I'm very happy to see them reunited but it has to be reunited on the terms of what we Catholics would call the truth with a capital T. Where you can get that reuniting, where people can sit down and say, here are the theological principles and we accept that the church is right, then I am overjoyed by the And by the
0: church, you would mean the Catholic Church. I mean the
1: Catholic Church. Church. I do mean the Catholic Church. I'm afraid, but we're adults. Uh, We can acknowledge our differences. And I can say openly that I regard Lutheranism as a heresy, right? Um, having said that, it comes from the same root. It comes from the same root. In the same way, I would argue, and there are some Catholics who won't like to hear me saying this, but in the same way Judaism and Islam come from the same root, being religions of the book, uh, They are at their centre is an attempt to understand God. And they both share certain foundational principles that come from the same origin. And that is why the dialogue between them will always be different and respectful and must be respectful and is a dialogue of attempted conversion both are trying to win each other mm-hmm. over to their other point to their point of view i hold on to my truth this is the truth revealed through the church this is the church established by jesus christ uh, through st peter as far as i'm concerned mm-hmm. but that dialogue I- is born out of a recognition that we're part of a splintered family i hope that's what that dialogue is is framed by
0: well, sadly, we're out of time, but just before we end, what is next for you? Is there another project? I know you've done many, uh, book, written many books and documentaries. Is there anything on the horizon for you you're excited about at the moment?
1: I do need to write another book. It is important. I suspect it will be something about conservatism in the last few years in the united states there is so much to say about george w bush the tea party and how we got to donald trump Mm. no one's yet saying it because there's so much happening right now people (laughs) are focusing upon the immediate and the present that's understandable But I'm I'm increasingly, I can feel it niggling at the back of my mind. I'm developing this obsession with how on earth do we get from George W. Bush to Donald Trump? Mm. And that might be the next big project, trying to write the history of that.
0: Well, that's a question many people are asking. So we look forward to hearing your answer in the future. Tim Stanley, for now, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. Well, there you have it. That was my interview with Tim Stanley this afternoon on The Profile. Do hope you enjoyed that. If you would like to hear more interviews that we've conducted with leading Christians, both in this country and abroad, why not head to the website premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. You can access past shows. and. Also, download the profile as a podcast. Sadly, that's all we've got time for today. I am going to leave you now and head over to Dave Rose, who's coming up next with Premier Playback. Just before I go, though, a reminder you can get the very latest issue of Premier Christianity Magazine for free. If you would like to have a look at the magazine that I help put together, there's some great articles, news, features, and columnists. Just head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample we'll be back next week but for now time to say goodbye hope you have a great rest of your weekend